Okay, welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our July 13th, 2007 edition of the show. It's 4.05 on the clock. Had our usual opening music from the Stooges. I got a right and had a little extra bit of music there, uh, something from uh, the CD Brian Jones presents the Pipes of Pan at Jajuka. All right. So uh, before we get started with the show today, a couple quick reminders. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And I always love getting feedback on the show, so email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. And uh, you can also hit me up on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash out the rabbit hole. Is there life after death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die is a provocative new book where quantum physics and consciousness research are used to put an interesting spin on the age-old question. My special guest today is the author of that book, Anthony Peake. And uh, we have him uh, by phone all the way from England. Uh, Anthony, we got you on the board? You certainly have. All right. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I understand you've been uh, doing extensive uh, lecturing and traveling around and uh, talking about the book, and uh, so uh, it's uh, midnight there in uh, where you're located, it correct? Is, yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so a little bit tired today, huh? Yeah, it's been a good day, though. I've done two separate lectures today, one one in Lancashire and one in Cheshire, part of the northwest of England. And indeed, hot off the presses, I got an email when I got back from the BBC television program Horizon, who were interested in talking to me about a potential program on BBC television, which is even more exciting. So that's hot off the presses. Well, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time with us time with us today, especially I know it's, uh, it's late for you after the long day you've had. And so, uh, yes, the book, Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die. Well, tell us a little, just a little about your background and how you came to write this book. Right. Well, for many, many years I've experienced the phenomenon known as deja vu. And uh, around about four or five years ago, I decided to take a year out, a career break for a year, um, to, to think about writing a book. And I wanted to understand exactly what deja vu was as a, as a, as a neurological effect and to expand on it and see if there was any more I could understand about the, the theory and background. And what I did was I came across um, a very interesting paper written by an American guy called Dr. Arthur Funkhauser, who is based in, in Bern in Switzerland, who'd written a wonderful paper called The Dream Theory of Deja Vu. And Art comes to the conclusion that deja vus are in fact a memory of a dream you've had recently. So effectively you've had a dream and the dream comes true in effect and you feel it as a deja vu as if you'd already experienced it. What then it spun me off into is the concept of, of human memory and how human memory works, which then led me on to near-death experience and particularly a part of the near-death experience phenomenon known as the past life review or the panoramic life review. And I then did a considerable amount of work and research and indeed had a paper published in the, in the International Journal of Near-Death Studies um, around about three years ago on my theory. And effectively what I conclude is that it is possible 
that at the final moments of our lives, i.e. just before we die, we fall out of time. And there are certain neurochemicals in the brain are released into the brain, particularly a neurotransmitter called glutamate, which effectively slows down our perception of time to such an extent that within a few seconds we could live 75 years within our own external, within our own internal worldview. And during that time, what happens is long dormant memories of our lives, which have been recorded through our lives, are regenerated again. And effectively, we go back to the moment of our birth and we relive our, our lives again in the final moment of our lives. So, in effect, when we realize that this is happening occasionally, that's a deja vu. It's a feeling that we've been here before because, indeed, you have been. That is a very, very quick synopsis without any of the quantum physics or anything else in the background, but we can come on to that a little bit later on. Yeah, yeah, this phenomenon, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and uh, I've experienced quite a bit of deja vu, and, and I, it's actually uh, been clear to me uh, sometimes when I've had that, that, okay, I, it wasn't that I had physically been there before, it was that I had dreamed I had been there mm. before. And and so, you know, I'm quite... quite uh, familiar with that and I, I also uh, in this weird notion of time distortion uh, I had a person on the show uh, Robert Peterson I think was his name and he he talked about this experience he had as a child where they were playing this game he's wrestling around with some buddies and uh, they would try to make each other pass out uh, you know do this bear hug kind of thing and, and, and one of the guys made the other guy uh, pass out and he was out for uh, a, a few seconds when, when he came back to to consciousness normal consciousness as we call it he had the 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 feeling that in that few seconds of being unconscious that he had lived an entire other life yeah. and, and this is just astounding to me that, that, that uh, anybody could could actually do that have an experience such as that I know it's quite fascinating. In fact, um, Aldous Huxley in his book The Doors of Perception has a section whereby one of the central characters in the book, and indeed it was Aldous Huxley himself, has a hypnotic regression where, he, where he's, he's hypnotized to a very low level, of, uh, very deep level of hypnotic trance. And he effectively finds himself following his own younger self through his whole life from the age of three to the age of 17. And he was away literally for, what, 14 years within an hour of a hypnotic, uh, you know, in terms of the laboratory, he was only away an hour, but he'd been away for 14 years. And this happens time and time again. Indeed, some of the people I was talking to today have given me many more examples of this falling out of time. And I think sometimes it's, it happens to many of us. You know, when you wake up in the morning, the alarm goes off, you turn the alarm off, put it on snooze, it goes on snooze, <laughs> and then you have, what, two or three minutes, but you can have a whole dream sequence during that time period, which can last for, 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 for hours. And then the alarm goes off, and it's only been two or three minutes in your own relative time scale. Yes, yes. And so I think what all of this is saying is that we have these preconceived notions, these assumptions about what consciousness is and about how time works, and these are really just assumptions. And can you talk a little bit about that? Of yes. and some of the maybe physicists or consciousness researchers that that tell us that those assumptions really are wrong. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, it's the idea, for instance, the one thing that, that intrigues me is that time is the only thing that's measured by itself. You can have a pound of apples and you can have a ton of coal, but you can only have a minute of a minute or an hour of an hour. <laughs> and that is purely and simply because time is a perception of your, your ego state because you can be in the circumstance that time can be very, very slow if you're bored. But if you're very excited and hyper-aware of things, time can run very, very quickly. And there's been quite a lot of work done on the concept of, of time perception and how we inwardly gauge time. Um, there was um, some very interesting theories put forward at the turn of the 19th to 20th century by a guy called Henri Bergson, who was a French philosopher. And Bergson, the reason that Bergson became fascinated in this was that he had a very curious dream when he was a young man. And he dreamt that he was involved in the French Revolution. And he was a member of the, the revolutionary group, including Robespierre and Marat, etc. And what happened was, over a period of time, he fell foul of them, and they had a show trial. And in the show trial, he dreamt that he did his own defense. He was found guilty. He was then paraded through the streets of Paris. He was taken to the place of execution. His neck was... He then made a long speech to the crowds. Then his neck was... He was placed on the guillotine. And the guillotine came down, and he was woken up by the headboard of his bed falling on the back of his neck. <laughs> yeah, that that's a... A bizarre story, and uh, and again, t- ties into this notion of our yeah. uh, ideas about time, or our, our assumptions, and our ideas about consciousness. And I think consciousness, you mentioned about time is the only thing that we sort of measure only against itself, but consciousness is this other thing that is just so oh, weird. We don't have, we, we really do not understand consciousness, or we, we think we do. It's one of the, the most amazing things in, effectively in the universe, the idea of how inanimate matter, which is the brain, and electrical stimulus within the brain can bring about the sensation of consciousness and the sensation of being and existing and the sensation of being conscious of being conscious as well. And it's a massive mystery because consciousness is non-physical, whereas the brain is physical. And it's this interface between mind and matter, which is an ongoing philosophical and scientific issue um, which is completely fascinating because we, we are all conscious beings and we are aware we are conscious. But where our consciousness lies is a whole different ballgame. For instance, is the brain some form of receiver of conscious awareness or does conscious awareness exist within the brain? And if it does, how come we can't find it? We, yeah, um, and we, we all agree that we think that we have thoughts, but we can't measure a thought. We nope. can measure things that are going on in the brain while we are having a thought, but you cannot measure the thought itself. No, and indeed, you can't. There's a, there's a term used in philosophy called qualia, and qualia is the idea of the intensity of, of, of sensation. For instance, the color red. We, we perceive the color red because a certain group of, of, um, of light waves are reflected. The, the red part of the spectrum is reflected off the object, which is red, which then ends up in the eye, which is then processed into the brain, and somehow brings about within the brain, within consciousness, a perception of red. But red doesn't exist anywhere. It doesn't <laughs> exist out there physically. It is something that the brain processes and brings into creation. You know, it's this kind of wonderfully amazing process by which we, we perceive everything around us. And so there's been some interesting research done in recent years in an area of science called consciousness studies. 
And it's the whole idea of how we process information, how the brain processes the external stimuli of the real world and presents it to consciousness. And it's quite surprising that I've found that there is strong evidence to believe that we buffer the, in, the external world and the information coming in from the external world is buffered for about half a second before it's presented to consciousness. Well, it, it, I, it's a thing that I often say is that everything is actually hallucination. Yep. <laughs> There's nothing you can say that is not in some way processed or tweaked by our sense organs, by our brain. It, it's all, it's nothing is in its pure form. It goes through all of these things. And uh, so... This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, and we're talking today with Anthony Peake, and we're discussing his book, Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die. So what is it, Anthony, that, that you're saying different in regard to the question of whether consciousness survives bodily death? Right. What I'm saying is that um, my book deals with the, the, the idea or the theory that just before we die, we fall out of time. Therefore, we never get to the point of death within our own worldview because we fall out of time. I cite an example of this. Um, when I was doing my research, I, um, I was phoned up by a recruitment consultant who was interested in knowing if I was interested in taking a job. And I turned around to her and I said, no, I'm not at the moment because I'm doing some research and at the moment I'm interested in, in, in temporal lobe epilepsy. Okay. This lady went very quiet, and she said, I need to meet up with you. And I arranged to meet her near Gatwick Airport, near London. And I met up with her, and she sat down with me, and she said, the reason I couldn't speak to you on the phone is I've recently been diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. Okay, so I then turned around to her and I said, can you tell me, I was really fascinated, and I said, could you tell me what it was that made you realize that you, were, you had a problem? And she said that she was sitting in um, a canteen at work, uh, a cafe canteen at work, and her friend was about to pour a cup of tea. Now, as her friend poured the cup of tea, she, my friend Margaret, I, I call her Margaret for, for argument's sake, Margaret felt there was a snap over her left ear. And she looked at her friend across the table, and her friend had frozen in time. She literally had frozen. She was like a statue. She, my friend looked around the room, Margaret looked around the room, and she found everybody else was frozen in space. She then could hear this low humming sound behind her, and she realized the low humming sound was the sound of people's voices because she realized her friend was moving phenomenally slowly. And she was trapped in this, 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 this dream sequence for hour after hour. And then she felt a snap over her left ear again, and her friend continued moving and continued pouring the tea. As far as her friend was concerned, she'd literally stared at her for half a second and come to again. But she'd been away for hours. She thought she had a brain tumor. She had an MRI scan. It was discovered she had TLE, temporal lobe epilepsy, which meant that, that the, 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 the chemicals in her brain had stopped and slowed down her perception of time to such an extent that she'd spent hours trapped in this worldview. I then asked her and said, do you get deja vu experiences? And she said she gets phenomenal deja vu experiences as part and parcel of the aura experience before she has a temporal lobe seizure. Now, it was interesting because um, my friend and associate Myron Dial was, was on your show a few weeks ago. And as you're probably aware, Myron himself is a temporal lobe epileptic. Yes. And Myron and I have been in, in regular contact recently because Myron has read my book and is fascinated by my theories because it vindicates a lot of things that have been happening to him. 
like his duality. You know, Myron was talking about Charon, mm-hmm. his, 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 his other being that exists within his life. My book also explains all that, and I argue that um, at the point of death, we split into two separate personalities, the higher self, which I call a daemon, and the lower self, which I called an eidolon. And I believe that certain individuals, such as Myron and other temple of epileptics, in fact, are more aware of their higher self or their daemon than normal people. Um, so there's the other side of the theory of that as well. So it's all to do with consciousness, it's consciousness and awareness of consciousness, and it's falling out of time. And I believe that when the person individual lives their life again, within this three-dimensional phaneron, a creative, illusory world, I believe that your own higher self knows what's about to happen next, which explains to me things like hunches or precognition and everything else, because part of you knows what's going to happen next, because it should do. You're living your life again. Okay, well, let, let me put out a scenario to see if I can make this uh, more clear for, for people listening. Okay, so let's say you, are, you and I are uh, sitting uh, somewhere at a, at a cafe or something, and, uh, having, having a drink, and uh, a, another person is, is sitting near us, and for some reason, a, a tragedy occurs, and somebody uh, shoots this person, and this person, uh, from your perspective and my perspective this person dies in front of us yep okay now in that time between when that person gets shot and the few minutes between then and and actually dying to from your your perspective and my perspective his brain does this thing where it it distorts the time and it slows down and he is having this life review and and time is slowed down so much that he keeps reliving his life over and over and from the perspective of his consciousness he never actually dies he just keeps playing that over and over again so that that's it right yeah, effectively, you've got it almost spot on. It's the circumstances within his perception. He falls out of time to such an extent that effectively, rather like I was saying with my, with my associate Margaret, Margaret could have been there in that dream state for 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 years, 75 years. But from her friend's point of view, it was still the blink of an eye. And in that whole time scale, she could have lived her whole life again. And I would argue that when somebody is dying, that is exactly what is happening to them. They're living their life again. And this is, this is not an unusual concept. Um, for instance, if you read the Philip K. Dick novel, Ubik, the characters in Ubik, or many central characters in Ubik, are in fact living the final seconds of their lives. Yes, yes, I love that Which book. It's a, it's a yeah, brilliant book, Ubik by Philip K. Dick. So, to, yeah, to get back to that scenario, uh, okay, so this this person dies in front of of uh, you and me, and it's like that person existing and then dying in that moment. That's the reality that you and I have established yeah. with our consciousnesses. But from his consciousness, that that didn't didn't happen. He didn't die. No, he didn't die. He never got, he never, his consciousness never got to the temporal point where he ceased to exist because his time expanded to such an extent that he could live a whole life again. And indeed, at the end of that second life, he lives another life again. It's, in other words, he's existing within his, his, his own Everett universe, for want of a better term, the theories of Hugh Everett III about the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics. Also, 
idea of something called the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics, which argues that, that reality only comes into existence when it's observed by a conscious being. So therefore is an argument to say that we all exist in our own universes. So therefore within his universe he never dies, but within ours he does. So this isn't like uh, wacky New Age people uh, saying this kind of thing. These are, are uh, physicists who, who oh, are, yeah. are saying this that... Is, that, that this, is, this is hard physics. The one thing about my book that um, is, fascinates people and fascinates scientists is that everything I say in the book is cross-referred to scientific papers. Everything, literally every single quotation is cross-referred because I argue that um, amazing statements and theories have to have amazing proofs. So it's all cross-referred, and I cite examples of quantum physics. For instance, there is a wonderful book, and I don't know if you can get hold of it in America, called The Universe Next Door, written by a guy called Marcus Chown. And this applies some of the theories of a guy called Max Tegmark, who's, I think he was at Princeton. And Max Tegmark has come up with a theory called the quantum gun theory. And it's very similar to my theory. It's the idea that within your own universe, again, you can never die. He applies, if anybody's aware of the Schrodinger's cat experiment, he applies the theories of Schrodinger's cat experiment and applies it to a human being. And he proves that within your own universe, you can never die. You are immortal within your own universe. Quite fascinating stuff and hard science. Yes, yes. So these uh, are these physicists are, are saying through some of these interpretations, which are not universally accepted no. in the world of physics, but accepted by quite a few uh, physicists, that consciousness is primary. Correct. Consciousness brings about the physical universe. People like John Wheeler, for instance, um, a lot of these guys... The only way they can interpret a lot of the quantum physics behavior that, they, that we see within science can be explained is by that very idea that it is a, the physical act of observation that brings about the world around you. And indeed, a lot of this has been touched upon in, in many modern films. You know, a, a lot of modern films deal with this from the Matrix onwards. You know, the idea that reality is some form of inwardly generated illusion. Vanilla Sky is another classic example. There are so many of them. And indeed, the, the, the listeners here may twig with this and say, he's talking about something very similar to the film Groundhog Day. <laughs> yes. And indeed, I was going to call the book Groundhog Life at one stage, <laughs> because effectively it is what I am, what I'm saying is very similar to Groundhog Day. Yeah, where you just keep repeating the life yep. over and over and over. And uh, I actually saw a couple nights ago saw the movie um, Jacob's Ladder. I, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Very similar again, isn't it? He is living his life in the final moments. He's re going back and reliving a life, and he's he's playing various alternatives within his life in the final moments of his life. Superb film, Tim Robbins, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's just like months or years are going by in what in real time from the perspective of the surgeons operating on him is just, uh, you know, less than an hour. The, the yeah. character himself, played by Tim Robbins, is, is yeah, months or years are going by, and, and these different uh, uh, realities he's playing out. He, he's living in one reality, and then he wakes up as if that was a dream, and he's in another one, and then, you know, he keeps yeah. waking up. And, and yeah, a brilliant movie, and the, the, the writer, I, I loved the interview with him on the DVD, and uh, uh, 
fascinating what he was trying to do with all of that and, and very uh, uh, appropriate to the, the subject matter of, of your book. And, and well, it, one of these things that um, people have said to me and, and said, isn't it interesting that there's an awful lot of films and uh, that are about at the moment that are very much similar to your theory. And I argue the concept of zeitgeist, the idea that the time is right for my theory, because what I'm doing is I'm, I'm theorizing scientifically about things that a lot of people are aware of via films. A lot of the Philip K. Duck stuff that's being put into films these days is, is very interesting, things like Minority Report. Right, and, and you know Philip K. Dick, his big influence was Gnosticism, and Gnosticism yeah. dealt with this notion that what we think of as reality is is not really the real reality, and uh, so Gnosticism was pushed underground by the yeah. the uh, Christian powers that be at the time, uh, uh, back around in the was third century, and so. I, I think it's been in the back of people's minds. They've had these notions, but didn't know how to uh, sort of verbalize it. And then it just it started filtering up through the films, through the writings of Philip K. Dick. And, and now everybody's got this out there and can have the feeling that, you know, I sort of always thought this. And, and now, yeah. okay, I'm not the only one. Well, funnily enough, um, I have a chapter on the book about Gnosticism, um, and I carry it through from the, um, from the ancient Greek mysteries through to Gnosticism, through to the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi texts, and take it through then to the Cathari um, and various other schismatic religious groups, all of whom had some interesting beliefs. They believed in the eternal return, which is what I talk about. They also believed in human duality, the idea that we had a higher and lower self. And I believe that the secret of the Cathars, and even when we read the Dan Brown stuff, I think that a lot of people have got this wrong. They think that it's the Ark of the Covenant, etc., or it is the bloodline of Christ. I think the secret of the Cathars and the secret of the Gnostics is the duality of the human spirit. Because um, if you read the writings of people like Maney, who was um, um, a religious leader, a Gnostic religious leader in, in Persia, he goes on all the time about his heavenly twin. As does Philip K. Dick. If you read um, Vallis, he has a lot of Gnosticism in there. He talks about Sophia, his own higher self, and the relationship between the characters within our own brains. It's all Gnosticism, and I think the Gnostics really were very, very attuned to the nature of reality, the idea that reality is an illusion, the idea that it is a false creation in one way or another, as is argued in The Matrix, isn't it? I mean, The Matrix is <laughs> yes. profoundly Gnostic. <laughs> oh, it is so many movies, The Truman Show. And, and, uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And you talk about the twin, and, and Philip K. Dick, I don't know if you're aware of this, actually had a, a twin sister. Yeah. yeah. In the womb, but she did not survive birth, and and so he always felt that on this actual real physical level, th this loss of this twin. But I think that helped to inspire him to to see this from these uh, this kind of uh, gnostic perspective. And you also talk about in your book uh, the work of of Julian Jaynes. Can you yes. go into that a little bit? That's fascinating. Yes, Julian Jaynes. Um he had a very strange experience in when he when he was a comparatively young man when he was studying in in Boston, and he suddenly found he heard a voice talking to him, and he was quite intrigued by this idea of hearing voices, 
And he came to the conclusion that sometime in the distant past, probably about 3000 BC, before that time, human beings had, had effectively a single, the brain was a single unit, and human beings heard voices in their heads, which was their own internal thoughts, but because they couldn't differentiate, they thought it was the voices of the gods. So this is where you have, when you have the legends of the ancient Greeks hearing the gods all the time, and in the, in the Old Testament of the Bible hearing the voice of God, it's in fact your own internal thoughts. And indeed, schizophrenics have a problem because their brains still aren't quite differentiated, and they hear voices in their heads because, it, the, the, because of the chemical imbalances in their brain. They can't differentiate between internal thought and voices. And James's theory is quite fascinating. I have a whole section on it. The book is called um, The Bicameral Mind. I can't remember. It's a very, very large title. The, yeah, The Emergence of Emergence Human Consciousness of and the Breakdown the of the Bicameral. Mind. Yeah, great title and for a book. It's a great book, and, it's a, and James is, is a simply fascinating man. It was very sad when he died because I was desperate to get in contact with him. It's somebody I've loved to have spoken to and, and spent some time talking through the theories. But again, I have a section in the book because, again, it reinforces my theory. In fact, that's the amazing thing that people tell me about the book, the, the scope is very, very wide. It's everything from, from rock music right through to, to popular culture and films, yeah. to Gnosticism, to quantum physics, to, to spirituality. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's all in there, and it all makes sense. Amazingly, yeah, it 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 all seems to bolster the the, the main argument. The, the this notion of hearing voices, discarnate voices, or voices that you know don't seem to have a physical body uh, or or an other physical body attached to them. We're hearing, you know, when people say that that they hear voices, we. We pathologize that. We yeah, yeah. that's a terrible thing, and and now there are conditions that, as you may, you know, schizophrenia and uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, and th these are. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's too simplistic if we just call them a pathology, uh, and I, I think it's maybe these people are hearkening back to this time when that was a normal thing for people to hear that, but it's uh, it's a little bit... Uh, it, uh, what, what are your thoughts? Do you see those yeah. as pathologies or, or not? I see them very much as there's a continuum, I believe, and it runs from what we could term normal, and I use the term normal in the sense the majority of the population, and then it runs through into migraine, and then from migraine into temporal lobe epilepsy, and from epilepsy into schizophrenia. And I think all of these conditions are, are more and more of the person's ability to experience the thought patterns and the thought processes and the perceptions of their own higher self. Now, I believe that with schizophrenics, what happens is that they're getting too much of the information. They can't deal with it. They can't handle it. Now, there was a wonderful example and a definition of schizophrenia made by an Australian physicist who became a schizophrenic called Rainer Johnson. And Rainer Johnson described what it was like to, to become schizophrenic. And he said, it was like when I was a normal person, I lived in the top of a, uh, those Irish round towers that they have in Ireland. And he said, it was as if I was living in the top room all my life, in the top room of one of these Irish towers. And in the, in the room, it had five windows, which were equivalent to my five senses. 
and I could see the outside world, reality, through the windows. Schizophrenia is like you've looked up in the roof and you've seen a trap door, and you climb through the trap door and you see reality as it really is, coming into you from all kinds of angles with sounds and noises. And the, the reason this confuses the individual is I'm fairly sure... Have you ever come across the theories of a guy called David Bohm? Yes, uh, in, uh, that's in your book, in the, the implicate yeah. order. And, and, and the implicate order. Now, David Bohm argues that reality out there is structured like a hologram, and it's a holographic reality that we can't perceive because our brain takes out the holographic imagery and processes it into what we can make sense of reality. Now, a guy called Carl Pribram, who was at Georgetown University, at the same time that Bohm was coming up with his holographic theory of reality, was coming up with a theory about the holographic nature of how the brain works. So we have this interesting idea of a holographic brain processing a holographic universe. And what happens is the schizophrenics, because of particular neurotransmitters in their brain, start to experience the real reality as it really is, the bell, the whirls and the spurls and the, everything else. A classic example of this, you may or may not be aware, there's been research done recently on some of the paintings by uh, Vincent van Gogh. And his painting, Starry, Starry Night, for instance, they processed that painting, and apparently he, he, was, he was painting and seeing cosmic rays. That's why it's such a peculiar painting. And, of course, it has long been theorized that he was either a schizophrenic or a temporal lobe epileptic. So, again, he was painting his experiences and how he perceived the world in all its strangeness. And, of course, it drove him insane. Well, let me ask the question this way. Would it be correct to say that uh, people who suffer from uh, temporal lobe epilepsy or schizophrenia, that they are sometimes getting real and valid and useful information, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that... that Sometimes they don't really, that sometimes we do need to medicate them because it really is just too much for them to handle. It's too much for them to handle. I I went along to an organization in Manchester in England called the Hearing Voices Network, and they deal with people who hear voices, strangely enough. (laughs) Um, And they work work on the theories of a guy called Dr. Marius Rom, who is based in the Netherlands. And I went along and I met a couple of people who hear voices. They were schizophrenics. And it was quite fascinating talking to them because they were quite rational about it. And they acknowledged the fact that it was strange, the voices. And one lad I was talking to, the voices kept talking to him. And he kept saying, yes, I'll tell them that. I'll tell him that in a minute. (laughs) Very, very odd. And this lad turned around and he said his perceptions are so high, he could hear the electricity running through the wires in his house. Instance, Fascinating. Now, 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 there are cases where sometimes it is very pathological, and these people do hear voices mm. telling them to kill people and those kinds oh, yeah. of things. But yeah, so I, I guess I just wanted to make that clear. That's but at the uh, on the other side of that, the, the information is often very useful. So it has to be a judgment call between uh, you know the person and the medical professional of whether the the he or she needs to be medicated. Well, the problem is from my reading is that. Even now, we are not entirely sure exactly what schizophrenia is and exactly what causes schizophrenia. Um, they're not, they know what drugs can, 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 can help it or, or can change people's mental states, but they don't know what causes it. Now, an example of this 
is really quite fascinating, and it possibly may be in my next book. I've been contacted by a guy whose son, and again, this is again linked to it all, who, who, who suffers from Asperger's syndrome, and he's also severely autistic. But this lad has some very, very strange things happening in his brain. For instance, he, 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 loves, he loves railways, railways and, mm. and model railways, and he has a computer program whereby he can model um, uh, railway lines, but he can also terraform on the program so he can design the, 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 the landscape that the trains are going through. And about six weeks ago, my friend phoned me up and he said something very strange has happened with Mark. He has terraformed um, a, an image and it shows a sea spit with a house on it. And he said, and parked next to the house is a, is a car, a pink car. Now, he turned around to his son and he said, Mark, what? where is that? And his son said, it's Massachusetts. Now, the interesting thing is this guy's son doesn't know geography. He wouldn't know about Massachusetts, and he definitely wouldn't know that Massachusetts was on the coast. Now, this friend of mine has another friend of his, a business associate, who lives in Massachusetts, whose house he's never visited, who has an autistic son. And he phoned this lady up, and he said, what's the view from your, your, your autistic son's bedroom? And she said, oh, he has the most beautiful view of the coast, the view of a sea spit. And my friend then said, is there a house on the sea spit? And she said, yes. And he said, do they have a car? And he said, "Younger, what color is it? And she said, pink. <laughs> so so he, he is accessing information in another way, and, and it makes me think of what you said earlier about things being constructed in a holographic manner. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Anthony, what I want to do is I want to take a little musical break here, okay? Yep. And uh, so we can just rest our voices for a couple minutes, and then we'll be back with more discussion, all right? Okay. All right, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, and uh, we're speaking today with Anthony Peake, and we're talking about his book, Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. <laughs> 